3,500 years ago almost, God sent a deliverer to a people who had been in bondage and slavery for a few hundred years. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and God was calling them out of Egypt, and he did so by the man by the name of Moses, who came before the Pharaoh and uh, announced to the Pharaoh some, some plagues, some curses from God that would cause the Pharaoh to let the people go. And there were nine of them that were offered up to the Pharaoh, nine different plagues, nine different curses, but the Pharaoh would not uh, relent and he would not let the people of Israel go. And so Moses came before the Pharaoh and he declared what would be the 10th and the final of the, uh, of the curses of the plagues. Um, one that would be devastating, like in a manner that all the others were not. It was going to be the death of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. Not even every family, but even amongst the, their livestock. And as Moses came before Pharaoh and announced that, Pharaoh dismissed Moses. And God said to Moses at that point that this is now going to start a new year and a new day for the people of Israel. From this point on, you'll, you'll be taken out and, and you'll be your own people. And he said, start counting from today. And in 10 days, the people will have to pick a lamb, a, a lamb without defect, a, a one-year-old male lamb that they were going to sacrifice so that God would pass over them and forgive them for their sins and that they would not experience the death of the firstborn in Egypt. You see, they, they didn't have phones back then. They didn't have email. So as, as Moses declares this, this plague to the Pharaoh, it's going to take a little time as it works its way through the households of the Israelite community. And they had 10 days then to pick out the lamb that they would sacrifice. And then four days later, so on the 14th day from when Moses declared this to the Pharaoh, on the 14th day, as the sun was starting to set, that lamb was to be sacrificed. And that lamb was to be consumed by the people of that house. And if the people of that house were, were so small that they couldn't eat the whole lamb, they were to join with a neighbor. And so that lamb was to be sacrificed. Uh, bread was to be baked, but without yeast, because it was to be symbolic of the, of the speed in which, the haste in which the Israelites would be fleeing Egypt. Uh, the entire lamb had to be eaten. Whatever wasn't eaten would have to be burnt in the fire. And they were to take the blood of that lamb and they were to place it upon the doorframe of their house. And if they shared in that sacrifice with another house on the doorframe of theirs. And about midnight that night, the, the, the angel of the Lord, the angel of death was going to come across all of Egypt and they were forbidden to leave their house at night. And where that blood was, was spread on the doorframe, where the people had eaten of that, that sacrificial lamb, uh, the angel of death would pass over those homes. And it would only visit the homes of those who did not sacrifice the lamb and did not place themselves under the blood of the lamb. For death was coming upon Egypt as a sign of God's judgment. And the only way to escape it was the blood of a sacrificial lamb. You know, sacrificing animals wasn't something new 
to the people of God and to the people of Abraham. If you go back to the very beginning in Genesis, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, they had two children, two sons, Cain and Abel. One offered to God a sacrifice of the fruits of the field, and it wasn't acceptable. But the other offered uh, the sacrifice of the blood of an animal to God, and that was acceptable. Why? Because the payment for sin is death, life for life, death for death, blood for blood. And, and actually, if you move forward from that Genesis event to the calling of Abraham, we see the importance of, of sacrificing in that whole uh, event as well, because God finally gave Abraham and his wife, Sarah, uh, offspring. They, they were old, unable to have children. Um, God promised that they would, and, and that, in fact, they would have as many descendants as stars in, in the sky. And in their old age, God finally gives Abraham a son, Isaac. But when Isaac ha has grown, God tells Abraham to take his son and to climb a mountain and to sacrifice his son as an offering to God. And so Abraham takes his son Isaac, and as he's preparing to sacrifice his son, God stops him, and God provides a ram caught in a thicket, and, and, and that becomes the, the substitution, that becomes a sacrifice. Once again, blood for blood, life for life. So this concept is, is, is very familiar to the people of Israel as they're in Egypt. And that night, in fact, God did come upon the land and all those who did not cover themselves with the blood of the lamb that did not consume the body of that sacrificial lamb, uh, the firstborn died in each one of those homes. Now that tradition continues for the next 1,500 years. For the next 1,500 years, every year, Israel would commemorate the Passover because when they did, they would not only remember what God had done in Egypt when God passed over the sin of their homes because they were covered under the blood of the lamb, they ate of the lamb, but they would do that yearly as a sign of their, their, their repentance, their continued repentance. And this is the meal that Jesus is celebrating with his disciples on that night in which he gets betrayed, uh, when he gets arrested, and, and, and ultimately it's going to lead to his crucifixion the next day. Jesus is sitting there with his disciples, and, and, and they're eating that lamb, knowing of what God had done in Egypt, and that by eating of the lamb and by placing themselves under the blood of the lamb, that God was forgiving and passing over, and not only theirs, but Israel's in the past sin. But then Jesus puts a little twist on it. And that twist kind of goes like this. For the last 1,500 years, our people have been eating of this Passover lamb as, as a sign of what God did in Egypt for the forgiveness of sins. But it was an imperfect sacrifice. It was one that needed to be repeated every year. But Jesus says, now the perfect sacrifice has come. Rather than take eat of this imperfect lamb for a temporary forgiveness of sin, take eat. This is my body given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Take drink, this is my blood. Rather than placing yourself, uh, the, the blood uh, of the lamb on the, on the household for, for the passing over of sin, now take drink, this is my blood that is shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Uh, for what had to be repeated every year will never have to be repeated anymore because the sacrifice of old was of an imperfect lamb, but now you have the perfect lamb of God. It's what... 
was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 53, 6 to 7. It says, we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted and he did not open his mouth. He was, he was led like what? He was led like a lamb that would be slaughtered. And as a what? As a sheep before his shears is silent. So he did not open his mouth. You see, God promised Israel that the perfect lamb of God would come where the fullness of the sin would be put upon that would be sacrificed and it would be the last one that would ever have to be made. And at the very start of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist sees him coming and says, look, there's the lamb. Look at John chapter 1, 29. John's down in the, the Jordan doing his baptisms. Jesus is coming at the start of his ministry. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So this whole kind of sacrificial system, this whole concept of, of blood for, for, for sin, blood for, for life, life for life, this comes to its fulfillment in the perfect Lamb of God that is sacrificed for us in Jesus Christ. This is our second week. That was a long introduction, I know, but this is our second week of the sermon series that I'm doing, A Journey to the Sun. And for me, like, it's just important. Like, we don't really understand who God is and we don't understand who Jesus is. And, and we don't understand really what the Bible is taught about him. And so we cover that over the last several weeks. But for these four weeks, I, I just really wanted to explain who Jesus is and, and what that and how that impacts our lives. So last week I talked in our journey to the sun, I talked about how uh, Jesus, uh, as he came to this earth, came incarnate. And I explained to you the significance of incarnate, that equality with God wasn't something that can be grasped. So Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took on the very nature of a servant, but when we look at Jesus now, we can understand who God is because he bore the fullness of, of who God was. And I also talked to you about the fact that because Jesus became man, we can know that God knows what it's like to be us. He can know what it's like to not feel well. He can know what it's like to, to be hungry or to be tired or to be sad or to be down or all these different things that we experience. God knows what it's like. But you see, this morning, what I need you to understand is the importance and the significance that in fact, Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. Because if you don't understand this concept, you can't really understand the faith. Here's one of the questions that I get all the time as a pastor. And if you're going to be honest with yourselves, every one of us in here has either thought of it or we're thinking of it right now. And that is, how do I know how do I know that Christianity is the one true religion? I mean, you've got all of these other religions and, and it, it seems a bit arrogant. Like if you're going to be interviewed on CNN, they would say, why are you convinced that, that this is the, the one true religion? How do you know these others aren't? It seems surface level to be kind of arrogant. And, and, and I guess it is, unless you understand this concept is Jesus is the Lamb of God. If you don't understand the concept, you can't understand how Christianity is different than all other religions. Let me explain. 
Let's start with the most primitive religion. Primitive religion is you live on an island, there's a big volcano, it smokes and it rumbles. Big smoking volcano that rumbles is God. We're afraid of God. And, and a volcano begins to smoke, volcano begins to rumble. How do you appease God? How do you make right your relationship with God if you're one of those islanders? Well, you, you have to give it offerings. And maybe if it's a certain island, it's, it's an offering of, you know, a bunch of food. But that offering is usually like kids and like people being thrown into it. And, and you throw in people to volcano until volcano stops rumbling and goes dormant again. And then the relationship with God's been made right. So the, the most primitive religions on the face of the earth like that, the responsibility of making right the relationship between God, volcano, and, and man is, it's man's responsibility. Okay? Now let's, Let's look at the, the, the major religions. And, and this first major one is really a, a minor major, but it's Judaism. And Judaism is only like 0.2% of the, uh, the, the population of the earth. But in Judaism, what determines whether or not you are reconciled with God and made right is what, what your ancestry if you're a descendant of Abraham, not all Jews even believe in heaven, but those who do, what determines if you go to heaven or not is, are you a Jew? Are you a child of Abraham? And, and so once again, it's really based upon you on whether or not that relationship's made right. And Jesus was bothered by this because the, the, the Jews said, you know what, you, you tell us all these things, you say that, 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 you know, God isn't happy with us, that God's rejecting us. We are children of Abraham. It's impossible just by being born of Abraham, kind of like if you're an American citizen, you get privileges, be, by being born of, uh, of Abraham, there's the privilege of being right with God. And Jesus says, God can make from rocks children of Abraham. So primitive volcano religion, it's based upon man. Even in Judaism, it's based upon man in that, like, if, if you're a descendant of Abraham or not. Let's go to, like, Islam. Islam makes up, like, a, a quarter of the earth in terms of, you know, 23% of the amount of people on this earth that are Islam. What makes the relationship right in Islam between people and God? What makes it right is how well you do the five pillars of the faith. And the five pillars of the faith are this, fasting, pilgrimage, giving of alms, of, of offerings, prayer, and confessing that Muhammad is the true prophet. If you do those five things extremely well, you are right with God. If you do them, and eh, then you're not really in a great relationship. And if you don't do them at all, you're out of luck. So once again, primitive religion of volcano, man make right relationship with God by sacrifice. Uh, Judaism by, by man being a descendant of Islam by, by what man does and how well they follow these five principles. What about the next largest religion on the face of the earth? 15% Hinduism. 
Now, Hinduism's a little different, but it's much the same. It's different because there's not a personal God in, 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 in Hinduism. It, it's, it's more of, God's more of like a force and more of an energy. And so in Hinduism, how does man make right relationship with God? Well, in Hinduism, like you keep getting born again. Like you don't got it right this time. It's all right. You're going to be born again, might be animal, might be person, but you're going to try to be a little bit better this time. And, and, and then the next time, the next time. And finally, like you'll get it right. And, and when you do, then, then like you, you, you just kind of become one or absorbed into with Brahma. So volcano, man makes right relationship with God. Judaism is that way. Islam is that way. Uh, Hinduism is that way. Then the last of the big religions, Buddhism. Once again, in Buddhism, God is not this personal being God like in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. But nonetheless, it's much the same. But what's interesting in Buddhism is this, is all evil is, is a result of desire. If you can learn to tame your desires, you can make right your relationship with God. And so there's, within Buddhism, this, this, desire, this attempt to rein in one's desires, and that's done through um, meditation. It's done through religious practice. It's done through asceticism. And, and, and when you've done it, when you've finally tamed your desire, then, then like you, you become one with that greater being. If you've ever watched um, the original Doctor Strange towards the end of the movie, the, the, uh, the, the disciples of, uh, of, I always call him your mama, but his name's not your mama, it's uh, whatever. But they get sucked up and kind of become one with them. That, that, that's, that's how it is in Buddhism. So once again, primitive volcano religion, man makes right relationship with God. Judaism, it's by who you are as a man that makes you right with God. Uh, Islam, it's that same. Buddhism, Hinduism, it's all, every religion, no matter how small or how large, it's always placed upon man to make right that relationship with God. Guess what? There's only one. There's only one in which that's not the case. And guess what that is? It's the largest religion on the face of the earth is Christianity. And if you need proof for like Christianity being the one true religion, it's the fact that it's different than the rest. No one could think about it and think it, think it up because it's this. This is how life works. You break my window, you pay for it. If you break my window, I don't, you pay for it. That's every religion. Relationships broken between God and man. Man has to pay for the window. Man has to make right. Christianity, it's not that way. You break the window, God pays for it. Whose stupid idea is that? No one's. No one would think of it. And there's a reason why there's only one religion on the face of the earth that understands that and believes that. And if you don't understand this concept of the Lamb of God, you're going to sit here wondering, well, I mean, all these other religions seem the same. They're not. One is different than the rest. Now, I learned a long time ago that 
When I'm doing a series like this, I I just want to teach you about Jesus. But I know, I, I know in my heart that like people want like application. And I have to tell you, I had something happen to me very early in my ministry. In retrospect, I'm glad that it happened, but, but I didn't like it at the time. Some of you may have heard the story before I tell it every so often, but it's been several years since, since I told it. But I, I had this kind of traumatic event happen to me. and It's not really traumatic, but it was to me at the time. So as you're going to school to become a pastor in our denomination, you have four years of undergrad, Um, got that in communications and four years of graduate school. And in your four years of graduate school, um, on your third year, you you get assigned a church somewhere and, um, and, and they call it a vicarage, but let's just call it an internship. And I was assigned to this church in Washington State. It wasn't a large church. It only had one staff member. Uh, it had a pastor and a very part-time secretary, so I guess two, but one full-time. Uh, and, and they didn't need anyone else, but they needed a little extra help uh, because the pastor didn't like really dealing with the kids or the youth, and so you just bring in the intern, and they do, right? So I was, this was where my assignment was, and it was made very clear. I do what, you know, I do, and he does what he does. And what I did really was just preach every other Sunday and kind of oversee Sunday school in the youth group. And if you try to do more than that, you get your hand slapped. But they're training you, so they have to give you some experience. So there's like, I can't remember if it was three weeks or four weeks, but I actually got to teach the adult Bible class. And I was excited because, I mean, you're going to be a pastor. You want to experience this. And so um, it was a Sunday class, and and I was teaching the class. And I have to tell you, I was was doing a good job, at least in my own mind I I was. I mean, I'm just a student. You know, I'm a a vicar. I'm an intern. And and, and, and like I said, I'm teaching. I'm like, yeah, I think I was doing a really good job. And then when the class was over, I was like, does anyone, anyone have any questions? I'm, I'm not, actually, I'm not even sure if I asked if anyone had any questions. I probably thought like I taught it so well they didn't. But this lady raises her hand. I'm thinking, all right, good. Yeah, if someone's got a question. I'll be able to help someone out. And this is that. And I like to help people out. And so gladly, I just call on this lady that has her hand up. And when I called on her, her words were, Vicar, that's great, but so what? And I thought to myself, is she talking to me? Who talks that way to the vicar? That's really rude. I'm thinking, I didn't say it, but I'm sitting here, I'm offended. But her point was, that's great. You've instilled all of this knowledge, but so what? Why does it even matter? And I have to tell you, like, I didn't like that feeling too much to be called out in front of a whole class like that. And so from that point on, I don't care what I'm teaching, any Bible class, any sermon, whatever, there's going to be some so what's. So you guys are going to get a few so what's. Just so that I don't have to hear from you, so what? And the first so what is, is one that I kind of extensively covered with you, but, the, but I've just got to say it again. The so what number one is this. Christianity is the one true religion. Don't be confused by everyone like that seems arrogant. It's not at all. There's one different than the rest. 
Our minds like to think that there's many roads that, that lead to God, but it doesn't work that way. I lived for a couple of years in Tucson, Arizona, and I'll tell you, like in Tucson, it's surrounded by mountains. And, and in Tucson, if you're going to go to the grocery store, if you're going to go to school, if you're going to go to the post office, granted, there's multiple roads that will get you to those places. But if you want to go to the mountain, in fact, if you want to go to the top of the mountain, there's only one road that gets you to the top of the mountain, only one. There might be all kinds of teachings, all kinds of philosophy, all kinds of advice, but there's only one road that leads to eternal life. And that is Christianity. Look at John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The second so what is this? A lot of us in here need to learn to forgive ourselves because God has forgiven you. I don't know what is it about like when we mess up, we just kind of feel like some of us struggle with being able to forgive ourselves. A lot of us beat ourselves up quite a bit. One of my kids, and I, I can't say which, because when I tell stories like this, you know, I have to hear about it when I get home. Uh, but one of my kids, when, when they would mess up when they're younger, they would always do this when they would get in trouble for something. They would go, stupid, 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 stupid. They beat themselves on the head and say, stupid. I, I, does that make you feel better? Apparently it did. For me, I preferred like that cartoon that I remember seeing as a kid that when you do something wrong, like there's this pulley system and you pull this rope and a shoe kicks you in the behind. Because frankly, there's just something about like kicking yourself in the behind when you mess up that makes you feel better about your mess up. We just have trouble forgiving ourselves for the mistakes that we've made in life. And there's some of you listening to me right now that, that you haven't forgiven yourself for some mistakes that you've made in your life. For some of us in here, we've said some hurtful words and we've lost an important relationship because of it. Maybe it was a relationship with a best friend. Maybe it was a relationship with our prior spouse. And we wish we hadn't said what we did. We wish we would have been a little more patient. We wish we would have been a little bit more kind and chosen our words better, but we didn't and, and we just regret it and we can't forgive ourselves and we can't go back. Some of you, maybe it was a relationship you, you ruined with one, one of your children. For some of you, maybe as a child, it was some things that you said that were incredibly hurtful to your parents. And you just can't forgive yourself for it. For some of you, it was the divorce that you had. And you just can't forgive yourself. For some of you, it was the abortion that you had. And you just can't forgive yourself. For some of you, it was the addiction that you've had in the past. Maybe the addiction that you're still battling this day and you can't forgive yourself for it. For some of you, it's some lifestyle choices that maybe you made 20 years ago that you just still can't forgive yourself, that, that, that you allowed yourself to behave that way. Some of you, it might be what you've got going on right now. And, and you know what? The reason that we struggle with forgiving ourselves is because you can't. You, you can't undo it. 
You can't make it right. So we become defined by our past. We're always looking back and regret. But even though you can't make right your wrongs, guess what? God can. And God did. In the person of Jesus Christ, who is the perfect lamb of God. And if God can forgive you for your past, then you need to forgive yourself, not because you can do it, but because God has already done it. And then the third and final so what that I have for you is this. That if God has forgiven you for your past, we need to make sure that we forgive others for the stuff that they've done for us. And I have to tell you, that's just, that can be a hard one. You know, I, another question I get frequently in addition to how do I know like Christianity is the one true religion? Another question that just really causes a lot of people to stumble is this. In fact, I think I was just asked this question a couple of weeks ago and I've been asked it a number of times and like, they'll say, what about like someone like Jeffrey Dahmer? Can he be forgiven? Can he be in heaven? And if you don't know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, like he killed 17 men and young boys and not only killed them, but he ate them. But before he was put to death, he claims to have found God. He claims to have repented and, and, and confessed. And, and, and the question is this, is like, can he be there? Because I'm not sure I, I want to be in heaven if he's going to be there. And like, when I hear that, I, you know, I mean, I get it. I mean, that's pretty messed up. That's pretty evil. And, and, and like, the first thing that I'll say is, well, if he is, I'm sure he's not like, you know, St. Peter at the gate. He's not part of the welcoming committee. But then I, then I try to push back a little bit because, listen, there's none of us that are comfortable with someone that like, ate 17 people and killed, you know, 17. We're uncomfortable about that kind of evil. I get it. But what if we just like make someone a little less evil? Is it okay for them to be in heaven? Like the church that I was working at before I went on vicarage, um, there's this uh, couple that went out with some friends on Christmas Eve for dinner. And as they were driving back from dinner, there was another car that had someone that uh, drank too much and was drunk and plowed into the side of them. No one was hurt in the car except for this one young mom. And she was killed instantly and left three young daughters without a mom. I mean, I, I get that we're not comfortable with someone that killed 17 people and ate them, maybe not being in heaven, but how about the guy that like took three daughters' moms away on Christmas Eve because they chose to get drunk? Are, are, are we okay with that kind of evil? Or, or what about the, the woman who's had three abortions? Are we, are we okay with that kind of evil, that kind of person being in heaven? Or, or what about the, 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 the guy who was very verbally and physically abusive to his wife and kids to the point that he really ruined them and they had really rough lives and, and both mom and kids died 25 years earlier than what they otherwise would because they end up living pretty destructively because they just had such abuse thrown on them by the dad. I mean, are we okay with that dad 
being in heaven. Or let's take the, the level of evil down even another, another notch. You got the dad who abandons his family. Maybe he doesn't know how to be a husband. Maybe he doesn't know how to be a dad. Maybe it's just getting, kind of getting claustrophobic. And so he just leaves his, like in the middle of the night, packs up his stuff and, and goes. They never hear from him again. But he was the bread earner and breadwinner. And, and like they could no longer afford the house. And so then they have to start like living in different people's homes and, and they spend some time in the, you know, on the street and, and like, you know, maybe they have to sell their bodies to pay for a place to live. Maybe when they're on the street, you know, uh, the wife and the daughters are, are raped. I mean, the guy didn't intend for any of that stuff to happen. He just needed to get out, but, but he's brought that kind of evil upon his family. Are we okay with him being in heaven? My question is, is like, how many levels of evil do I have to bring this down to before we're comfortable with that evil being forgiven and that person being in heaven? And I would challenge you with this, evil's evil. And yeah, we might be uncomfortable with like this Jeffrey Dahmer scenario, but even in this unintended evil, this last situation that, that I described and the evil that results, it's just evil. And either God forgives evil or he doesn't. But I'm here to tell you, like, I hope God does. I'm here to tell you, I know God does, right? Because this is what scripture tells us. That's why Jesus came as that, that, that Passover sacrificial lamb. And, and, and if God doesn't forgive evil, none of us stand a chance because all of us have evil. All of us have sin. There, there might be levels of it, but, but nonetheless, even what it is that you and I have can cause a great amount of damage. And I'm here to tell you this, that as God's willing to forgive us for our evil, we've got to be willing to forgive others. Now, there's a debate in Christianity, and I don't think there really should be a debate, but we actually had uh, this in one of my classes, like, well, does someone need to repent to be forgiven? And we kind of argue that back and forth. Well, let me just at least show you what Jesus says. From Luke 17, 3. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. And if they go on to sin against you seven times in a day, but if seven times they come back to you saying, I repent, I'm sorry, you must forgive them. So Jesus at least answers this, that when someone is sorry, we must forgive. And that's what he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. We're to pray, forgive us our trespasses, old word for sin. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. If we've received forgiveness from you, then yes, we were going to give forgiveness to others. Jesus tells a story about this, this king who calls the sin or the debt of one of his servants to account, but the servant doesn't have the ability to pay the debt, just like we don't have the ability to pay the debt for our sin. It doesn't matter if your God's a volcano God. It doesn't matter if it's Islam God or whatever. We can't make that situation right. 
And so the, the, the king says to the servant, pay up. And he's like, I can't. Please forgive me. For, forgive my debt. And the king has mercy on the servant and forgives him his debt. Now, maybe the, the guy's all like messed up in the head because he almost got thrown into prison uh, by, by the king, but escaped it just barely. So what does that servant do? He goes to a servant that owes him money, not nearly as much of a debt, and he demands that that servant pay the debt. The, the guy's just like, listen, I'm sorry, I don't have, give me some time, give me... I'll repay it. I just can't right now. And the servant that had his debt forgiven, he goes and he has that other guy that can't pay him back his debt. He has him thrown into prison. And the king finds out about it and the king's not happy. And the king goes back to the servant that he forgave a much greater debt and said, how can you go and put your fellow servant in prison because he didn't have the ability to, to pay the debt, to pay for his sin? And the servant had no answer. And so the king says, all that sin, all that debt is going to be put back upon you. But I tell you what, not only are you going to pay for it, but you and your whole family will be thrown into prison until it's repaid. What's God saying? What's Jesus saying? He's like, I've forgiven you. Now you go and forgive those who sinned against you. So here's the so what. Forgive yourself. Stop looking back. Stop being defined by your past. Forgive yourselves, not that you deserve it, but because God has forgiven you. If God can forgive you, then you need to be forgiving yourself. And if God's forgiven you, forgive others. And know your faith is the one true faith. Why? Because it's different than all the rest. And it's the only one that's not based upon you but upon the love and the mercy of God who sent the perfect lamb of God into this world to be slain so that your sin would be forgiven. Would you join me in word of prayer? Gracious almighty God, as we hear this message today, as we are confronted with the reality of this amazing gift that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ, your perfect lamb who sent into this world for us. I pray for everyone who's done things that just they're not sure if it can be forgiven, that they would know and understand that they are forgiven, that evil's evil and terrible results come from it. But that payment was made in full by your son on our behalf. And where we have freely received that forgiveness, melt our hearts of anger and resentment and help us to forgive those who've sinned against us and give us a certainty to know that there's only one way to the Father and that is through your amazing Son and it is in his name we pray. Amen.